Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Welcome again to Bridge Church. We're glad that you're joining us uh, this Sunday. I'm Rasul Berry. I'm the teaching pastor here, and you're joining us in a series through the book of Hebrews called Look to Jesus. Now, because we really wanted to take some time to really dig into the text, our lead pastor, James, uh, who has been guiding us through this series, uh, he just really sensed God putting on his heart that we, we really want to be a people of the book in this season in particular. And in fact, we actually offered for anyone that wants to, you know, have a copy of the book of Hebrews, um, that we've been giving those away each Sunday, and we have them here today. So if you have not received one already, and you want to uh, have that copy of the book of Hebrews, just slip up your hand, and we'll get those to you. I see that. Just nice and high so the folks can see you. Now, in, in preparing for this message, um, you know, was doing some research and I, was, I came upon this article that was talking about a show uh, that I hadn't heard before, but it was an interesting episode in this show called The Bold Type. Now, in this show, uh, essentially it follows three millennial women uh, who are living in Manhattan uh, through their lives, their journeys through work and relationships. And uh, one of them, uh, it starts to, she goes out on the first date with this uh, guy, English dude, who's a doctor. You know, she, she sits down, they sit down, he, he's, she's attracted to him, good-looking guy, he's articulate and thoughtful, and so they have some nice, great banter. Then the food gets served to them, and before she knows anything about it, he just kind of bows his head and starts to pray out loud for the food, and she kind of freaks out. She's like, whoa, what just happened? So later that evening, she, um, she kind of plays it off and, 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 you know, goes back to her girlfriends and, and they're talking. And they're, how was the date? How, you know, how'd it go? And, you know, do you like him? Is he cute? Oh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, he's religious. Like, he actually prayed, like, over his food and stuff. And I'm like, I don't, I don't really know about all that. And they were kind of looking like, well, I mean, was he weird? They were like, no, no. I mean, just the, the praying part. And uh, so she goes out with him again the next day, and she sits down and talks, and, she, and she's like, I, I just don't understand something. You're, you're a medical doctor. You've been to college for eight years. You, you, know, you, you seem like a reasonable person. How could you pray and believe in a God that will actually miraculously answer prayer and heal patients that you're trying, like that, that's what your job is? I don't get it. And, you know, he began to just share a little bit about his story and just, you know, how, you know, his faith is a key part of his life and there's no dichotomy. And she just was like, ah, I don't know. And, and it, you know, and as the episode went on, you realize that uh, it comes out that her mom had, uh, was, was very devout person of faith and had, you know, was diagnosed with cancer and, um, you know, ended up praying and telling her to pray and, and, and later passed away. And she just really couldn't wrap her head around that. But that moment in that scene, 
kind of reminded me of what it is to feel like life in the city as a person of faith. And, and, and in those moments, you, you, you know, it kind of makes you wonder if you're, you're the guy in that date, do you, the next time, do you just not pray out loud? Or do you not just let people know when they ask you how your weekend is tomorrow that part of your weekend was actually worship and going to church? These, see, there's, a, there's a, a competing world story that exists in our society that, that, that doesn't make room for this faith story that essentially says in this story, it's something like this. We, we are simply here because our planet happened to produce life like us, and when we die, we won't exist, and when the sun dies, all civilizations will be over forever. Therefore, while we are here, we are free to inject meaning into our lives by creating and pursuing our own values and in turn make the world the place in which others are free to do the same. The end. And the key question is, in that scenario, there's no need for outside help. There's no need. There is no outside help. The only, the only possible solution is for us to just realize we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, determine whatever we think right and morality is, and then go that path. And so in that context, many of us struggle with this idea of what does it mean to have a dynamic relationship with God who I can't see, have a sense of still being in this city where I'm trying to make moves and make things happen, yet I'm still trying to be dependent and in step with the Spirit. What does that actually look like, especially when I'm surrounded by people that's like, I don't even know what you're into right now? And in that sense... We meet ourselves and we find ourselves in a very similar place than the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to. They themselves found themselves in a culture that was completely dismissive of their Christian faith. You had the Roman Empire who said, Jesus is Lord. No, no, no. Caesar is Lord. If you want to get ahead, if you want to align yourself, if you want to make moves in this society, you need to bow the knee to the one in charge, the emperor who thought he was God. Now, on top of that, they also, these, the, these Jewish Christians had this other pressure that they, when they went home, those who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah who still went to temple, who still went through all of the ceremonies that were part of their culture and their heritage for generations, they felt the pressure of being like, you know, I don't think we can allow our kids to play with your kids because you, you, you worship that Jesus guy, and we're about Moses. And so in the midst of that tension, some people just started to fade back and just go, you know, maybe I'll just dumb down the Jesus talk. Maybe I'll just, you know slide back into the way I used to do things and depend on that is my advocate and depend on that is my savior. And it is in that context that you see the connection. It might be the trappings of the challenge might be different, but essentially it's the same thing that we face. And so this is why the author of Hebrews makes it so clear and he keeps circling back in ways that even seem repetitive in your reading. Why does he keep hammering this thing home about who Jesus is in chapter one and two? Jesus is superior to angels because some people are like, yo, you really want to get ahead? Let's look at this angel thing. Kind of like, you know, the stars and my sign and that's going to give me direction in life. 
And he's like, no, no, no. Jesus is superior to the angels because, in fact, Jesus made the angels. He made the stars. So, nope, you're still looking at the wrong one. Chapter 3, it's like, well, wait, Moses, you know, he's our lawgiver. That's that dude. And he's like, well, actually, Jesus is greater than Moses as well. Because you see that law, that word, he is the word. So then it goes, well, the, the priest, the, the system of the priesthood that was handed down from generation to generation, clearly that is something we can trust in. And he was like, oh, you know, that actually was just a foreshadowing of the substance that was to come. His name is Jesus. So in this context, he's exalting him and he's placing Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of the story. We were singing earlier about him being the king, and there's this picture. So this is the scriptural story that, that God does exist and that he created us to be in relationship with him. He's given humanity. Uh, he's made us in his image, and part of that image means rule and dominion and flourishing and, and living out all of that on earth. But the problem is we allow sin to enter the picture, distorting that image. And so ever since that moment, God has been on a rescue mission to bring us back to him. But the key issue in that challenge is the issue of sin. So in the light of that challenge, he says, look, this, this aspect of Jesus as the high priest is something you got to get down. You got to nail down. And in fact, this chapter 5 pretty much is the key section from 5 to chapter 10 is a, is, a, is a key dominant section in the entire book that says Jesus is the high priest. You got to understand this. Because in addition to him being the king, in addition to him being the prophet, he's also a priest. Now, what is a priest? A priest is one who intercedes for the people as an advocate. And that's why we're going to talk about today the anatomy of an advocate. The anatomy of an advocate. There's four different pieces in particular that we're going to look at. Because you see, by definition, a high priest was an advocate representing the people to God. Especially dealing with this sin issue. First, we're going to look at Jesus was a chosen advocate. Then an interceding advocate. Third, he was an obedient advocate. And last, fourth, a saving advocate. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you again for your word and just the opportunity to come before you. Would you, Holy Spirit, fill us? Would you meet us where we are right now and speak to us through your word? In Christ's name, amen. Now, the interesting thing about this priest theme is it's very countercultural, right? C.S. Lewis put it best over 50 years ago in, his, uh, in a book called the, um, God in the Dock. Now, it's called God in the Dock because in the British system, the seat that the accuser would sit in, right, to be examined by the attorneys is called the dock. So that's just an important piece to keep in mind. This is what Lewis said. The ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaching his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease. He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. 
We live in a culture in which God is in the dock, right? Like, like we, 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 we often get questions like, well, wait a minute. Well, why did this happen? And why did that happen? And there's the assumption that as humanity, we have what it takes in order to have, we actually have the moral high ground over God because look at all these terrible things that have happened in the name of God throughout our history and our society. But this perspective really gives us a challenge with understanding the, every, the very role of a priest. Because you see, the priest was supposed to represent God, people to God in light of their sin. So the roles are reversed in that. And we'll see that that's how it ought to be. Because the high priest did three things. He, he was chosen from among the people. His weaknesses enable him to deal gently with the people. In other words, an, an angel couldn't be a high priest. Because angels didn't struggle with sin. They didn't have that sin problem like humanity did. So in God's wisdom, he said, no, it has to be a human. But it can't just be anybody. It had to be specifically from the people of Israel and specifically through the sons of Aaron. And then the third thing is he had to advocate for people to God with sacrifices. All right, so here we go. Hebrews chapter 5. Y'all with me? All right, here we go. Four. Ooh, that's a little. There we go. All right, that's bad. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the author here is setting the stage. He's reminding his audience, okay, these are the key components. These are the, this is the aspects of the anatomy of an advocate. This is what it required in order to be a high priest. He had to be chosen. He had to be able to empathize. He had to actually obey God to the best of his ability, and then he had to be in a position where he was willing to sacrifice on behalf of others. Now, this was a highly specialized role. Of all the three major roles that Jesus played between prophet, king, and priest, this is the one when you look in the Old Testament is the most highly specific and specified. This is just an image. Last week we looked at um, the, the, the temple and all of the di different details around that. But I want to give us a glimpse of just what the high priest had to wear. Even that was specified. Now, it specifically lays out in the book of Exodus, for example, in verse 28, 29, who, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart as a continuing memorial before the Lord. So you see the aspect where it has different colors over the chest of the high priest. That, those, those different colors are different stones representing each of the tribes of Israel. And he's saying this is a reminder of the fact that you are representing them and their concerns are chief on in your heart. You have to care and be compassionate and, and, and concerned about their well-being. It's called the breastplate of decision. But then if you look at something else, it says the high priest was required to have gold bells attached to the hem of his garment so that he will not die. One of the biggest issues that cause us to just have a difficulty and leap in understanding and grasping this is kind of living in a postmodern secular society is the holiness of God is something that our society basically doesn't comprehend anymore. 
Matter of fact, when you think about the word holy, it is the most misrepresented word in the English language. The only time you hear it, if it's holy blank as an exclamation or someone being holier than thou, which means that they're judgmental. But in the biblical economy, this aspect of holy, it's the only word that is used to describe God three times in the Old Testament. Holy, holy, holy. It has to do with his character and nature being completely perfect and without sin. And the holiness of God was so real that it was like, yo, you can't even enter the presence without first allowing him to know. You have to do it that he'll come in because he has to dial down some things because when he experiences your sin, and you, you know, he might just take you out. And in fact, there's, you know, this isn't in the scriptures, but one of the, if you uh, read some of the um, extra biblical Jewish writings, there's, there's perspectives and beliefs that they actually had a rope around the high priest's uh, foot because when he would go in and they'd be listening for the bells, and if the bell stopped after a few minutes, they was like, oh, he must not have confessed his sins. Come on, pull him out. It was serious. And then you look at the tur- turban on his head. It says the turban was plain white with a gold plate placed on the forehead, on the plate were inscribed the words, holy to the Lord. And so this, and then you see the the bowl that he's holding, and this bowl had incense in it, and it was to waft the, the incense in the room that was supposed to represent the presence of God in the prayers of the people. So he is a total representative in every single aspect. And it's saying that, wait a minute, this was what you know, this is what your perspective, and now let me tell you how Jesus is actually fulfills these things and surpasses them. First, let's talk about the chosen advocate, right? Because they had to be uh, from the children of Aaron, first Aaron and then his offspring. And then once they became the offspring, because, you know, he had a lot of kids and they had a lot of kids, they had to do a lot system where they basically flipped the coin to see who would be the one that would go into the temple. And that's how it was selected. That was how the appointment, the chosenness happens. But in verse 5 of chapter 5, he now turns the corner to look, focus on Jesus. And he says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He says, okay, I'll see your lot system and you being from the children of Aaron, and I will raise you a son of God who was chosen directly by God himself. You see, this quote, whenever you see these indentations in your scripture, that's a hint and that's a clue that is either a piece of poetry or it's a quotation and a reference from a different point of scripture. This, you are my son, I have begotten you, is from Psalm 2, verse 7, which is a messianic psalm, which is just a fancy way of saying the psalm's about Jesus, and it was telling about him hundreds of years ago that he was going to come, and this was going to give you glimpses of what he looked like. And so what he's saying is God hundreds of years ago, called his shot and said, bank shot, left corner, Jesus Christ, down the hole. And, and he says, so, so that's, a, that's a better shot than just random flipping a coin, right? He says, you are my son. Notice the son capitalized, also speaking to his deity. And this is the turning point. Why does this matter? Because you realize the chosen one has chosen you. So you chosen, chosen. (laughs) And that means that we can be secure in who we are in him because he was chosen. Somebody say he was chosen. All right, the next one. Jesus is our interceding advocate. He's our interceding advocate. To intercede means to intervene on someone's behalf. Many a time, my grandparents would 
intercede on my behalf when I had done something wrong and I was about to catch that thunder from my mom. They'd be like, wait a minute now, you know you did the same thing when you was his age, and he, this child don't mean, he don't mean no harm, and they would kind of stand in the gap for me, right, to intercede. Look at what it says in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered, actually, I want us to read this together, because this is really the crux of the entire passage. One, two, three. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Oh, man, this is, I got to move expeditiously through this because I could stay here forever. It says Jesus intercedes for us with loud cries and tears. Remember, the, the high priest had to wear the people he was representing on his chest and also the sons of Israel on his sh- shoulders to signify that he was carrying their burdens. And now we're saying that this high priest actually offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Let's stay there for a second. You know how awkward it is to cry in public? Anybody ever experienced that? How about on a date? Well, I've had that experience, so I can tell you about that. I was in college. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was in college, and, uh, you know, we had been going out with this young lady for, you know, a couple of dates. And uh, we went to the movies, and then afterwards, we, you know, were just kind of hanging out and talking, and I was talking about my upcoming trip to study abroad in Cameroon. And as I started talking about it, I just got really emotional. And like, t- before I knew it, tears started streaming down my face. And I knew exactly what I, it was. is because my uh, grandfather was sick. And I didn't know if, I was gonna, if he was going to pass away while I was in Africa. And I missed his whole funeral and everything. Here's a picture of him and me. He pretty, he was, uh, I didn't re- grow up with my dad in the house. And so he was pretty much the father figure in my life, called him Pop. And so I just all of a sudden became overwhelmed with emotion about like this moment and realizing, yo, in a week, I'm about to get on the plane and I don't know if I'll ever see him again. Pretty awkward. But, uh, you know, it didn't turn out too bad. She ended up marrying me. So, (laughs) hey, hey. Now I'm going to have some dudes like, see what happened was? <laughs> but but I, I remember the sense of when I got back, he didn't pass away when I was there. But when I came back, uh, he was still in bad shape. Um, I had been a believer for about three years at this point. And I was just praying and praying that God would, would do something. And, and you know, he, he passed away. And I remember it being so difficult to understand, like, God, I'm serving you, I'm leading Bible study, like, I prayed this one thing that I wanted more than anything else. Why didn't you answer? Why didn't you respond? My family asked me to do the eulogy. I remember my brother, who normally never shows emotion, just in tears as he came in. He came late because he just didn't even want to say goodbye. And I remember feeling the responsibility all of a sudden of leading other people through this situation. But it reminded me of when I would come and visit him. Uh, He had dementia. 
And so it was a lot that he was confused about or didn't remember. And, but I would, at the end of my visit, I would say, hey, can I pray with you? Can I pray? And he would say yes. He would always say yes. And then I would take his hand. And as I prayed with him, it was like I feel his hand t- hold me tighter. He starts saying, yes, God. Yes, Lord. And it was like I had this moment where of just, hey, he was back. And as, as I thought about that, it just gave me a sense of peace of knowing uh, what, you know, just where he was. But at the same time, there was still this struggle. But here's the thing that helps me. Jesus knows all about that. In John chapter 11, check it out. He also has to go to a funeral. It says, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Powerful picture. So much here that we can relate to. You've sat here in this seat before and there's been a time when something has happened. You've experienced a devastating loss. And you either said out loud or inside your mind, Lord, if you would have been here, I'd still have this person. If you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And the interesting thing is it says that Jesus saw her weeping and was deeply moved. He saw the funeral procession and saw the, the, the ravages of sin and death in the world and was like, I hate this. But notice he didn't rebuke Mary. He just said, where have you laid him? And they said, come and see over here. And, it's just, and then it says he just, he wept. And it, and it was so meaningful and powerful that the people said, look, look at how he loved Lazarus. Man. But some said, well, I mean, he could heal blind people. Why couldn't he heal Lazarus? And look at what Jesus does next. It says, Father, he prays, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. Here is the anatomy of our high priest. He intercedes on our behalf. He hears our pain. He hears our crying and our groans. He empathizes with that. And he also has the power to flip the script. He said, oh, I know he's dead. See, now, you know the backstory. Early on in chapter 11, he saw this was coming on. See, they, Mary and Martha had sent word days before. And he was just around the corner. And he just didn't show up. That's why they were so upset at him, because they were like, yo, you got the message. Why didn't you come? But do you realize they thought the situation was dead, but with Jesus, there's always a resurrection. (laughs) Somebody needs to shout about that, because there's some situations you think is dead. And Jesus specializes in going, okay, show me the body. Where is it? Come out. Come out. It ain't over yet. Okay, you got denied from that opportunity? Don't worry, I got something bigger and better coming for you down the pipe. Don't worry about it. And if it doesn't come in this life, he says, I got you in the next. I mean, either way, that's just keeping it real, right? But look at the last part of this just blows me away in verse 7. It says, 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, this wouldn't be so, I mean, the supplications, obviously he prayed, Lazarus came out, that would be fine. But it says he was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And you're like, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't saved from death. Like, he died on the cross. But what this is actually getting to, and it comes back later on down the pike, is that his resurrection was God's answer to the prayer. Some of us are frustrated and we're angry and we're uh, bitter and we're upset because the prayer didn't get answered the way we anticipated, but that doesn't mean God didn't answer the prayer. It just means he didn't answer it the way that we anticipated. And that since that last piece, because of his reverence, he was heard, leads us to the third point. Jesus is our obedient advocate. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, this is a back-to-back mind-bending paradox. Wait a minute. You mean Jesus learned? But wasn't Jesus like omniscient? Doesn't he know everything because he like God in the flesh? What you mean Jesus learned stuff? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Janelle and I, Janelle Bechtel and I, we, were, we did the Equip You class together. And while we were doing that, we, you know, she was telling me that she was training to run a marathon. And I was like, oh, you know, I've run a couple of half marathons. She was like, where? Like, you know, give me some advice. What was that like? And the training and all that. So I kind of told her about the regimen and the routine. And the following week, she was like, you know, I, I did it. But I tell you what. You telling me about what it was going to feel like to run 10 miles and actually running 10 miles is two completely different things. You can read a book all you want about a marathon, but until you actually start training for that sucker and running that type of length, 11, 12, 13, 20 miles, you have no idea of what it means to follow that kind of a regimen. You have to learn that kind of obedience. So this is not talking about information that Jesus didn't have. It's talking about experiential learning, the capacity to actually, actually not just go, you know, I, I kind of conceptually understand what it means for humans to go through sin and what it means to fall, but let me live and walk in their flesh and actually have to deal with this suffering. And when I do that, I understand you. I get you because I've been there. That's a different type of Savior. That's not the universe coming to save me. The universe don't know that experience. That's God incarnate in the flesh. Look at this. We get a glimpse. You might not, all right, you're not, you're not convinced. Luke 22, 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, it says two verses later, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, some of us in here may have prayed so hard that we cried. But to have you ever prayed so hard the sweat came down and were, you were bleeding sweat? For many years, a lot of scholars would say, see, this was an example of the fact that uh, this, these gospel accounts can't be trusted because this is like a legend. Like, people can't sweat blood. Like, when's the last time any of us seen somebody that, something like that happen? 
But then eventually medical science caught up with the word of God. And they discovered a term called hematidrosis, hematidrosis, right? Hematidrosis is a condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood, occurring under conditions of either extreme physical or emotional stress. WebMD is right there. Amen. Eventually they catch up. Eventually they catch up. It's saying that Jesus was praying so hard and so fervently for us and for our sin condition that he was sweating blood. So the next time you are tempted to think that God doesn't care about your situation, remember the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what Tim Keller has to say about prayer. He says, to pray is to accept that we are and it always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. This is why it's so important for us to realize we're talking about a different story. We're not talking about the story that exists in which we are only ones in control of our own destinies and that that's all that there is. No, we're talking about a story where the God of the universe who sees us, cares about us, sweat blood for us, and says, I am coming back to get you. That's the story that we stand on. And that story changes everything because it means that we're not alone and that we have a participation with God. And that's especially hard in the city which is like, yo, grind, do you. That's all you got is you. We often hear the frustration that God can't hear. But see, here's the thing. We want Garden of Eden type intimacy. Y'all remember the Garden of Eden, right? Like Adam and Eve was walking with God in the garden. And we're like, yo, I want that. But the reality is we want Garden of Eden intimacy without the Garden of Gethsemane prayer life. It don't work that way. If I want to experience who God is and I want to actually walk with him, and I, I got to go through some things. I got to be able to pray intensely and realize that. And that's how I get to the intimacy of God. That's how I get to understanding his presence and his will and his word. That's how I get to seeing like, yo, God was with me in that perspective. Because at my lowest, at my worst, he was still present and he was still there in the garden. Lastly, Jesus is our saving advocate. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see the parallel? It said that the son learned obedience, and now it says, now he becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who obey the high priests back in the day, they had to sacrifice first uh, an animal for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. And they had to do that year after 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 year. Jesus goes on the cross one time, completes, satisfies God's judgment and his wrath and says, now I am the source of eternal salvation for all who obey me. Now, this is very interesting because oftentimes what we see in the gospel is we see those who believe by faith this, by faith that. Here, the author of Hebrews turns to the word obey. 
And you got to remember the context, right? Because he's dealing with people not who don't understand or haven't actually tr- believed or had a faith profession, but these are people who were starting to dip out and slide back because it's starting to get a little hot in order to represent God. So, you know, maybe I just won't come to church that Sunday and maybe I just will stop reading and maybe I just kind of slip out and maybe, I, and he's like, no, 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 no. Eternal salvation for all who obey. Now, I need to be very clear and specific here because this is not talking about a works-based system of salvation. Salvation is only through God's grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. But salvation is not based on our works, but it is evidence in our works. See the difference there, right? Like, you know, I, I, one of the things that happened on TV, I won't accuse who it is that was watching it, but there's this uh, show called Revenge Body. Um, Khloe Kardashian, and so people like want to get revenge on people by like you know getting sleek, and so they assign them a trainer, and and that trainer gives them a, a food regimen and a workout regimen, and and they I mean they take their blood and they say okay this is what we got to do to tweak, and then every few while they come back and have an assessment, and so they step on that scale, they say you know look at the blood dynamics, and they go up oh, nope, you haven't been following the regimen, because if you were following this regimen you would be seeing these results. You are not committed to the process because if you were committed to the process, you would have different results. The scale would look different. What this is saying is that, no, no, you're not saved by your works, but if you really did step on the scale, it would be moving some type of way because you would have followed the regimen and God would have done work in you that looks different. He's saying examine yourself to see if you're truly in the faith because especially when the heat gets turned up, it gets hard to do. Jesus is our saving advocate. He intercedes. He takes the wrath that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve upon himself. We know that the check didn't bounce because he bounced back from the grave. But that's not the last part of this. There's one last part, and it says, we are now called to advocate for each other. This is the bug part. So you would think that, okay, there was all the priests and there was all the priesthood and all of that, and that would all go away because Jesus rolls up the, cur- the curtain towards, he, he dies on the cross, says it is finished, comes back three days later, gone, no more priesthood. But the priesthood still emerges again in the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Man, this is good. Because see, back in the day, you could only qualify for the priesthood if you were part of the Levites, if you were part of the people of Israel, if you happened to have an ancestor named Aaron. But now he's saying, look, you Gentiles, those that they call dogs, y'all up in this thing too. If you put faith in Christ, put on your vestments, put on your armor of righteousness, put on your helmet of salvation, Put on that stuff and you intercede for each other. You can be each other's advocates. Not in the way of coming, helping people to experience salvation. That salvation has been done and worked for. But in the sense of, look, continuing to call people out of darkness into the marvelous light. Well, how do we do that? What does it look like for us to be an advocate? So glad you I asked some great questions today. In Galatians 6, 1 and 2, this is what it says. Brothers and sisters... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law 
of Christ. He's saying, look, this is what it looks like. This is the anatomy, not only of Christ as an advocate, but of us advocating for each other. It says, look, if you see someone who's struggling, if you see someone in sin, see, we live in call-out cancel culture where you just blast somebody and say, okay, they've fallen short, boom. But Christ, we see something else. It says, look, if you see someone who gets caught up, you see somebody in a place they shouldn't be, doing something that they shouldn't do, talking how they shouldn't talk, it says, you who are spiritual, go restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. Remembering, <laughs> you too are weak. You too, it could have been you. And then so bearing each other's burdens and fulfilling that law of Christ. So what does it look like to bear each other's burdens? Well, I got to experience this firsthand a few years ago in that race that I ran, that half marathon. So I'm running a race and the first few miles, I was like, it was lit, man. Like, they, they, I, I hadn't, because when I did the training, there wasn't, like, people on all sides, like, cheering for you. So, like, I was going faster than my time, just the adrenaline rush. For the first, like, seven miles, I was good. But then that heat, it was a hot day. People were dropping like flies around me. And then I just remember mile nine and mile ten. Lord, have mercy. It got real. All of a sudden, my legs start feeling like logs. I was just, it was cramped, I had cramps in my stomach. I was just, I was, I was like, yo, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Who thought of this? Why am I doing this? You know, you start yelling at yourself. <laughs> and at around, like right before mile 11, I'm like, you know, I don't even know if I can finish walking. I think I'm going to tap out. And at that time, all of a sudden, I just heard my name. Russell, go, go, Russell, ah, go, yeah. And it was some friends of mine that had come to cheer me on, to help me finish. And right at my knee when I was about to give up, when I was about to fall out, they're cheering and they're making noise and they carried me that last two miles. I started running faster. I couldn't feel the pain as much. And this is a picture of what it means for us to bear one another's burdens. We carry them, just like the high priest had those stones. We, we lift, you can't finish, well, we'll finish with you. And this is why we emphasize city groups so much. This is the opportunity that we get to live out that priesthood, to live out what it means to carry one another's burdens, to, to lift those weights and to realize that we are in this thing together. We keep emphasizing this, not just because we want numbers and people to show up, but because we want people's lives to be changed and we know this is how it happens. Because sometimes we forget. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we're just ready to give up and quit because it's too hard. And in the midst of that, you need people to say, keep going. You're doing great. You're almost there. Finish the race. And there's Jesus, our advocate, and he's just clapping us on in heaven. I see you. I know what that feels like because I ran that bad boy. <laughs> I can empathize with that. And when we see that and when we experience that, it changes everything. And we realize that we're not alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the reminder that you are an advocate Lord, we pray that you would help us to run with others.
An old African proverb says, if you want to run fast, run alone. But if you want to run long, run with others. Help us to be ones that run with others. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I want to do something a little bit different. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.